Hey guys, it's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while. And you're listening to Murder's Night Out with Anna. And Lance. Happy evening, everyone. Merry evening, yeah. <laughs> it's been a minute, and I thoroughly apologize for that. It's been... Uh, Life happens. <laughs> well, it's been a little crazy. We've... Uh, it has. We uh, had planned to record earlier, and then tornadoes happened. <laughs> yeah, that was a whole uh, whole storm. <laughs> yeah. Like, no joke, we, and I know this sounds like first world problems, but when I say the tornado that hit our area was devastating. It was. It was absolutely devastating. And, you know, our house didn't get hit, luckily, but we were able to see the funnel cloud from our house. It was a little close for comfort. Yes. And we were out of cell service and internet for several days. Yeah, that was terrible. It was, but I mean, guys, whatever you do, if you pray positive vibes, whatever, pray for the people that were affected. It it has devastated the surrounding areas in our area. It has been chaos. Yeah, it, it was kind of crazy. It was a EF3 tornado that was three and a half miles wide. But it couldn't knock down our fence. <laughs> Right, right. I need you to go out there. I just needed a little wind gust. That was it. <laughs> Grown-up problems, the price of lumber, man. We trying to claim that on the home insurance. Right, right. I need a new fence. <laughs> we just need to go out there and encourage it a little bit next time. <laughs> take take a couple braces down or something. <laughs> just give it a little push. You know, despite how shitty that fence is built. It sure has lasted through some windstorms. It's like the Nokia brick phones. <laughs> Them fuckers are indestructible. I swear. No matter how shitty they are. <laughs> 60 mile wire wind gust. Yeah, it's standing up to that. God. <laughs> Leaning and everything is oh, still holding up. And I really, I really don't understand how. Yeah, I, don't I really either. don't. You can go out there and literally just like shake it. Mm-hmm. And it looks like it's about to fall down, but. 60 mile an hour all, wind gust. Of all nope. the things in the world, you would think a fucking tornado could blow it down, but nope. that motherfucker's False. sturdy. Watch, <laughs> <laughs> watch it fall down and like the next, like one of us, like one of our kids like hit it accidentally. Right. And then it's going to fall down. <laughs> <laughs> Dogs going to run into it too hard. <laughs> hey, they're working on that now. I, I swear, swear to God. Anyways, so yeah, I apologize that it's been a minute. Um, yeah, there's been a lot going on and I've been trying to get this to y'all. So thank you for being patient. Thank you for hopefully still listening. Um, yeah. Life happens, you know. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, I'm not going to take up any more time with banter. I just needed to get that out because uh, we've got a lot to dive into. So. Hold on to your britches. Yeah. So we last left off in part two. Jesse had just been sentenced to one charge of first degree murder and two charges of second degree murder. And then next up was Damien and Jason's trial. Now, one of the key things that the prosecution 
really needed, which it can be seen also in the Paradise Lost. I know I keep quoting that, but it's a really good documentary, whether you believe they're guilty, innocent, how whichever side you lean on. But one of the key things, and by admission of the prosecution, was Jesse's statement. Um, the only way Jesse's confession could be used at trial was if Jesse was there. He had to be in trial to give his quote-unquote confession. That was the only way it could be used. Now, in order to persuade Jesse to take the witness stand against Damien and Jason was to offer him a plea deal, which was a reduced sentence. And, you know, I think one of the things said maybe 40 years and then possibly get out at 25 in order if he mm. would testify against Damien and Jason. Prosecutors ran this by the family of the three victims. And in the documentary, you could see him saying, you know, without Jesse's confession, it's really a 50 50 and that this was their best option. They further stated that without Jesse's confession, they had a little bit of evidence, including secondary transfer fiber found on one of Stevie's shirts that matched a fiber. You know, I, I kind of talked a little bit about that, I think in the first one yeah, or in one of the parts before, but some fibers and, that matched something found uh, a robe or something found in Jason's house and then a fiber on another victim's shirt or Stevie Branch's Cub Scout scarf that matched a shirt found in Damien's house. They were real vague. Well, not really vague, but they were, as Gitchell said, on a scale of one to 10, 11, they were real sure about this, yeah, but they were super confident. this is kind of where you start to see maybe, maybe it's not as strong as they think they are when the prosecution is telling the family like, Hey, we want to offer this deal. Right. Uh, in order to get Jesse to confess because this was their best option. And really the only, the only, like, thing. I guess you could say solid piece of evidence that they had. Right. Now, even though Jesse was offered this deal, Jesse was told that if he didn't testify, Damien and J Jason would walk free. And that he wanted to do that basically because he couldn't live with himself lying on the stand. Shocker. Well, it's, it's really, it's really sad. I mean, it's y'all, you know, we went over the confession last time. We, we went through all of the detail and I even had one girl that I work with who listens to my podcast. Hi, Mary uh, said she watched the clip of the confession and it's really, it's really sad. It's just, it's sad all around because you know, the three victims, let's not forget Christopher Byers, Stevie Branch and Michael Moore, but it's really sad to watch. Jess, if he's innocent, Jesse give this confession because, you know, as we pointed out in the last episode, there's so many details that are wrong. Right. The important thing. Now, when it came to Damien and J Jason's trial, they had a real hard time finding some jurors because they're trying to find unbiased jurors and trying to find somebody that hadn't heard of this case or didn't have already have a biased opinion was difficult right. to say the least. There was even an uh, an incident Sunday, the Sunday before testimony began. There was a sign. Uh, I think it was a reporter for the commercial appeal or another big newspaper around here was driving by the courthouse and he saw a sign stuck in the courthouse lawn 
with, and it had a grim reaper on it. And it said, he wants you, Damien. Wow. Yeah. So trying to find an unbiased jury was proving to be difficult. I think in that book by Mara Leverett, it, it took a couple of days to even find the first juror during jury selection. Jeez. So yeah, it was pretty, pretty intense. So Damien and Jason's trial began on February 28th, 1994. John Fogelman and Brent Davis, still the prosecutors, uh, they began their, op- their opening statements describing the crime scene. Um, they even mentioned about, they. I guess they kind of got ahead in this opening statement or trying right. to fight, you know, fight a fire before it starts, I guess you could say. But <laughs> trying they, to shoot something down before it happens. Yeah. So they, and you know, he was describing the crime scene where he pointed out that there were a lot of scuff marks but there was no blood on the ground, no blood anywhere. And then even proceeded because he knew that they had little evidence in this case. He even admitted in his opening statements that they were going to introduce what was called negative evidence, which negative evidence doesn't necessarily link anybody to the crime. So their case was based all circumstantial, basically. Wow. Then after Fogelman finished, uh, Jason Baldwin was represented by Paul Ford. He began his opening statements by describing Jason, talking about how he was an average student, not a troublemaker, and that he had a very poor background, came from a very poor family. Uh, Even talked about how his mother worked the night shift and Jason was responsible for getting his younger siblings fed and dressed in the morning and on the school bus. And basically that they were only arrested due to a sloppy investigation. Right. Uh, He even spoke about how the police took saliva samples, blood samples, fingerprint footprints. They even took cast shoe prints of Jason's shoes, sent it to all of these expert crime labs, which I'm going to do a whole other episode on all of the evidence because there's a lot (laughs) There's a lot of things that were put into evidence. Inconclusive evidence. Well, not even just that, but there was a lot of things put into evidence that you don't really see in the trial or in those documentaries. But all of this stuff was sent to all of these expert crime labs like um, Arkansas State Crime Lab, an Alabama forensic science crime lab. I'm trying to, there's one other. Oh, the FBI, like all of these places. And still Paul Ford in his opening statements pointed out that there was no substantial proof linking his client. And before actually before any of this evidence was sent off to be tested, he pointed out how Gitchell in his, that uh, press interview that I talked about where he, the reporter asked on a scale from one to 10, how strong is your case? And Gitchell smiled and said 11. Right. He said all of that before any of this was sent out. (laughs) So (sighs) it's, Paul Ford took, took advantage of this situation in his opening right. statements to let everybody know. <laughs> Tried to cover his ass. Well, not cover his not cover his ass because this was more of like just because you'll see later as we get down the road how part of their strategy was to basically point out all of the wrongdoings in the investigation, this being one of them. Mm, so, gotcha. Yeah. After Paul Ford finished his opening statements, 
Val Price, which was Damien's lawyer, got up and did his opening statement, which he essentially repeated the same statements that made that he essentially repeated the same statements made by Dan Stidham in Jesse's opening statements in his trial, talking about how the police got Damien Eccles tunnel vision. And he even, by his own admission, Val even said, yeah, Damien's a little different. He's a little different than the rest of us. You know, where's black? He's into, you know, looking at different religions and, you know, things, especially right. in a small town in the early 1990s during satanic panic, people would view as weird. Yep. And also in his opening statements, he said there was no evidence that Damien did it. So next we move on to... The state called their first witnesses, which was Dana Moore and Pam Hobbs. They basically repeated the same testimony that they did in Jesse's trial, talking about the last time they saw their sons. Uh, Melissa Byers was one of the witnesses talking about how Mark had seen Christopher riding his skateboard on the street. And at that point, Mark had brought Christopher home. John Mark Byers had brought Christopher home and gave him a belt whooping because he was supposed to be outside cleaning either the front yard I've heard of the as the front yard or cleaning under the carport either way he was apparently supposed to be cleaning but he was caught outside skateboarding now what's interesting is that this whole time the prosecution story was based on you know the three boys Jesse's confession said three boys all of these other witnesses said three boys well the prosecution called a witness named Brian Woody, and he had testified he had seen four boys go into the woods. Really? Yes. Now, where did this come from? Yeah. A <laughs> uh, part of me, and even the book Devil's Knot, said, could this have, you know, may have been laying groundwork for testimony from Aaron? Yeah. Aaron Hutchison, the little kid that was supposedly in the woods when all of this happened. Right. Who knows? Because apparently everybody was taken back by this because like I said, this whole time it's only been three boys. Yeah. Three boys. Jesse's confession. It, it's only been three boys. So that was a big shocker for everybody in the courtroom. And it was just a little out of nowhere. Basically. Yeah, I was going to say, where did that come from? I know. So when I was listening to this, I was like, what? Even I was like, it's only been three by all of this quote-unquote evidence to begin with. Right. Next up for the prosecution was Detective Mike Allen. He recalled the discovery and said that, yes, there was no blood on the ground, but he had testified that the water around where Chris's body was found, there was a lot of blood in it. Hmm. Just an important note to add to that. There was no report of this in any of the re police reports. And one of the sources pointed out, which is a really good point, if there was blood in the water, then why would Detective Ridge have to get down on his hands and knees and search for the bodies if there is a notice noticeably bloody area in the water? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Exactly. And none of this, this bloody water was not in any of the police reports. Well, of course not. So, it's I don't not know if they forgot. I don't know if they forgot, misplaced it, or I'm they're full of it. shit. You let me know what you think. <laughs> <laughs> then, next up was Detective Brian Ridge. He described how he had found the boys. 
he was cross-examined and then he, he was asked by the defense how police handled the evidence that was found with the bodies. Are you ready for this? Oh, Lord. So, apparent, uh, not apparently, obviously the clothes were soaking wet. And so when he was asked how this, this evidence was handled, uh, he talked about how the clothes were wet and that they had to be dried before they were sent to the crime lab. The clothes were all placed in, which that makes, I guess I'm not a crime analyst, not a scientific one, but that's not the bad part. So in order to dry these, all of the clothes were placed in used paper grocery sacks and then taken to the station where they were removed and air dried on the floor of Gary Gitchell's office overnight. I whoa, have in my notes whoa, literally whoa, what whoa, the fuck. Whoa. Yes. Whoa. Yes. Now, if you're just doing that to regular clothes, not a big deal. But, to but this is evidence. No, 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 no. Evidence. No, 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 no. It's supposed to be separated and put in individual sealed bags, but uh-huh. no. They were put into used paper grocery sacks where they were taken to the police station, laid on the floor of Gary Gitchell's office to dry overnight. And they had all this secondary transfer pop up on clothes. And they're wondering where it came from. You know what? I'm glad you said that. That's actually a very good point. I didn't think about that. Because all these things that were these fibers... And they laid them on a freaking public floor of an office in the police station? Come on now. Yes. Yes, they did. Where did... Yes, they did. And and they're trying to use that as evidence. Come on now. Do better. Yes, they did. Do better. And in all used grocery bags. I mean, dude. Yes, they did. Freaking crazy. I'm not lying. True story. It's in the trial transcripts. <laughs> right there. This is not something that... I Like, yes, the devil's not book... As I'm reading these books or these secondary sources, I like to kind of cross-reference with official like trial documents and evidence right. documents. When I read when I read this, I was like, no fucking way. No. <laughs> Absolutely fucking way. <laughs> There's no way. Brian Ridge got on the stand and said <sighs> that this was the way that they handled evidence. Whether you believe the boys are guilty, like the three teens are guilty or not, that right there is just sloppy police work. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Sloppy police work by Detective Brian Ridge's own. Who knows what was on the floor in that exactly. office? Exactly. I mean, I don't know. You let me know what you think. But There's no I just way thought, that should have even been. I thought that that was absolute bonkers. Yeah. I'm not a specialist in crime lab analyzing but I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to do that because even in their opening statements, like you just said, which is a, I'm glad you're here. That is a fantastic point. Secondary transfer fibers. Yep. They can come from anywhere. Yeah. Especially if you lay evidence on On a a public public floor. floor. I mean, come on. Anyways. So then on top of that, he was also asked by the defense about the two sticks that were put into evidence. The two sticks, you know, Jesse had talked about in his confession, you know, how they were choked with a stick or something like that. Yeah. Well, these sticks that were put into evidence 
weren't gathered and put into evidence until almost two months after the murders. Now, <laughs> so Ridge explained that the reason it took so long was because they didn't know about these sticks until, and he's doing this on the stand. Now, remember, Jesse's confession was not allowed in a, into trial because in order for it to be allowed into trial, Jesse had to be there to give it himself. Yeah. Well, as he's explaining why that, you know, it took two months to put these sticks into evidence. He starts to say, we didn't know about that part until Jesse's can And then the defense obviously objected. Right. Because he was not supposed to bring that up. Yeah. Because it's not. Can't use it. Exactly. Now, due to this little slip up by Brian Ridge, the defense tried to move to move for a mistrial because, as I just stated a thousand times, Jesse's confession was not supposed to be a part of any type of testimony or evidence because Jesse was not there to give it himself. However, Burnett had acknowledged that it shouldn't have been mentioned, but that there was no basis for a mistrial. So they cut him off, but still, I I don't know whether that was just an accidental thing or what have you, but I feel like, and y'all can tell me if I'm wrong, if there would have been anything on, whether it was the three boys on trial or somebody else on trial, if there would have been anything on those sticks, they weren't gathered until two months later in a small patch of woods, which... Everybody has this, not everybody, but some people may have this idea that the Robin Hood Woods is this big, like, forest. It's not. It's a very small patch of woods behind the Blue Beacon off of the service road in West Memphis. It's not this big patch. So it is a public area. Not saying that a lot of people, I don't know if a lot of people hang out back there, but. Right. You know, there were a lot of people walking back there. And it's these two random sticks. Yeah, them fools just walked out in the woods and grabbed well, two sticks. Well, I say two random sticks. I, I'm not totally clear. Now, there were sticks that were used when the bodies were discovered that were used to jab clothes down into the mud, I guess, as a way to conceal them. Right. But I don't think that these are those two same sticks because I feel like if those were the same sticks, they would have gathered them the day they discovered the bodies because that there was an obvious link there. So who knows? I don't know. Even, even so, how do you know those are the same sticks? Right. If you didn't gather them that day, I don't know. Just some things to think about. After Burnett decided that there was no basis for a mistrial, Ridge was then asked about the blood scrapings that were taken from Bojangles, mm-hmm. where he again said that they were lost because yeah. the defense was asking, well, what did you do with the, or first I think they asked, when did you send off the samples? And then he said, we didn't. Well, what something along the lines of, well, when are you planning to, or what did you do with them or why, why they weren't sent. Right. And that's where he admitted they were lost. Jeez. Just like I said, whether you think they're guilty, innocent, however the case may be, 
it sucks because this case was made a lot more complicated than it should have been due to sloppy police work. Yep. You don't lay evidence on a public floor. Nope. You don't lose what could be valid evidence, blood scrapings. And lose them. And lose them. Just some things to keep in mind as we're going through this. Now, Val Price got up and asked uh, Ridge about a note that was written a few days after the murders. Apparently, Ridge had taken a note of a tip, maybe, where an area resident had called in and stated that they had seen a black man were seen in the woods, the Robin Hood Hills woods that night. Under that note, there was an added little additional comments, which I physically saw this note, uh, where Gitchell had added to this note that during cult activities, some members blacken their faces. Really? Yes. They were dead set on this being cult-related. Because, you know, we talked about, uh, well, this note, because this note was written a few days after the murders. We talked about... And we'll get into some more things later on. Um, you know, Jared, was it Jerry Driver or somebody, t- you know, asking where they shared the same feeling? It had occult overtones and things yeah. like that. And who would be capable of doing this? That kind of thing. Yeah. They were just convinced that was it. Now, before Damien and Jesse's trial, a special trial was actually held regarding the mentioning of cult activity. Now, Jason Jason and Damien were tried together. Ford, which was Jason's lawyer, was really trying to get the trial separated because there was no proof or any kind of evidence leaking Jason to any type of occult activity. Right. And with them being tried together, any type of mention of cult act, of occult activity could hurt Jason's outcome. Right, yeah. Because if you've seen this kid, granted... He's obviously older now. Man, this kid is just the 16-year-old kid that likes Metallica. He likes to draw. He, you know. Yeah. I mean, he's just, a to me, in my eyes, a normal kid. Yeah. So they were really trying to separate the trials because, I mean, I don't understand why they tried them together anyways. I understand yeah, that some cases either. call for it, but I really... This is a death penalty penalty case. Like, yeah. One, Damien's an adult at this yeah. point. Jason's still a minor. I don't think you should try them anyways. Yeah. So, anyways, they held a special trial to and you know, to decide whether cult activity could even be mentioned because Price and Ford, which were the two defense lawyers, Price was Damien's, Ford was Jason's they had really had two different strategies of battling and laying out their defense. Right. Price wanted to attack the idea of cult activities because they believed that their preliminary thought of cult activities brought unwarranted attention to Damien. Yeah. There was nothing, you know, satanic panic era. They were like, ah, cult. Oh, I know somebody who did that. And then they, the whole Damien Eccles tunnel yeah. vision. Yeah. Ford didn't want cult activities even mentioned 
because like I said earlier, he believed that there was no evidence to link Jason to cult-like activities. And if it were mentioned, there was the potential for irreparable harm done to Jason's defense. Yeah. Uh, Ultimately, they were still tried together, but they should have been tried separately. Absolutely. Now, during this special hearing to decide whether cult activity could even be mentioned, Burnett ultimately ruled that the defense could question the police about their interest in cult activities, but only if the prosecution had introduced cult activity as a motive. Because at this point in time, cult cult activity wasn't even their motive that they were going to use, or they really hadn't decided on which prosecution hadn't decided on which direction they were going to go. Basically, maybe they were waiting on other evidence or I don't, I don't know, but that's why this, you know, this trial was held. And he also added to that. He would issue cautionary instruction to the jury. If cult evidence was introduced that it should only be considered in regards to Damien and not Jason. Yeah. So, so next up for the witness, uh, next up for the witness list for the prosecution. I can't talk tonight, guys. I'm so sorry. (laughs) It has been a last, it has been a crazy last couple of what, like two weeks. I don't know. Something like that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not sure. Words, words, words. Anyways. So Dr. Frank Peretti was up next for the prosecution witness. He was the medical examiner that performed the autopsies. Yeah. He was asked about, so before this, I think it was, which hadn't really gotten into it yet, or I can't remember if I'd mentioned it or not. So apparently before the trials even took place, but like six or seven months after the murders, a knife was found in a lake behind Jason's house. Now this was not their lake. This was a public lake that just happened to be behind yeah. Jason's house. It was a, it looked almost like a survival knife. You can see it in the documentary. Anyways, uh, Dr. Peretti was asked about this particular knife that was found behind Baldwin's house and, you know, asked if this knife could create the injuries that were found on some of the bodies. He did say that, some of the injuries were consistent with the knife, but most serrated knives can make those kind of injuries. Yeah. Then he was handed the John Mark Byers knife. Now, if I've mentioned, if I'm re, it's been a minute. So if I'm repeating this again, I'm sorry. Or if this is the first time I'm, I'm going to go ahead and explain it. So now during the making of paradise lost part one, John Mark Byers had given the makers or the producers of this documentary a folding knife as a quote unquote Christmas present. Yeah. Three weeks before Jesse's trial. And when the makers of the film looked at it, they thought it was obviously kind of odd, but yeah, they looked at it and they saw what appeared to be a, I don't know the best way to put this. Um, it appeared to have blood on it. Hmm. Now, so they immediately turned it over to the police. This knife was eventually sent to a lab, which the results showed 
that the it was dried blood and tissue in the the folding crevice of the knife. Yeah. And the DNA that was present matched the type of Mark Byers and Chris Byers. Now, while we think of DNA the way we do now, like unique identifiers, DNA wasn't the same back then, just like in some of the other evidence we'll go over, it matches a certain percentage of the population. So it's nothing definitive. Gotcha. But still a little weird. Yeah. So I'd the say results so. were inconclusive. Anyways, going back to that, they were handed, Dr. Peretti was handed what was noted as the John Mark Byers knife on the stand. And they asked him if this was consistent or if this knife could have made any of the wounds found on the body. And Pretty stated that some of the wounds could be consistent with that knife as well. Mm -hmm. uh, he went over the autopsy findings. You know, he went over the fact that the victim that was castrated wasn't actually castrated. The skin was removed, which I think we covered that, that he wasn't actually castrated, but the skin around oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the genitalia was removed, but he wasn't horrible either way yeah no kidding and the defense was saying that would be really hard to do like you would need a scalpel or something like that and yeah. freddie's like yes would you would that be how difficult would that be for you to do in your lab with the scalpel and he's like very difficult so and then and this is going somewhere where then they said so you're saying that for a trained medical professional pathologist for however many years this would be difficult for you to do and he's like yes now add on top of that could you do this in the water and in the dark yeah he's like it would be very difficult a trained pathologist <laughs> so this was part of their you know their defense like yeah. basically Saying, kind of insinuating, it's hard for you to do it right. in a controlled environment. But a sixteen-year-old boy, but a sixteen-year-old boy with a survival knife in, in the, the dark, dark, in the water. Yeah, yeah. You you get where I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> then there was one other thing that he noted was that there were no mosquito bites on the bodies. Yeah, you're looking Wait at me crazy. <laughs> There was no evidence of mosquito bites on the bodies. And this, keep that in your back pocket because Arkansas in May. Bro. Near the water. Bro. They, they don't have mosquitoes over there. They have small flying horses that bite you. Yes. Thank you. They're gigantic. And there's a lot of them. Just keep these in your back pocket when you're trying to come up with your own conclusion of whether you believe they're guilty or innocent. Arkansas in May, near the water, at night. And not a mosquito bite. That's insane. If you're not from here, like Lance just gave us that very vivid explanation, mm -hmm. that would be a miracle. Yeah, it really would. Like, we have a pool and we're not in Arkansas near the river, but we have a pool mm -hmm. and summertime near that pool. Yeah. You better coat yourself in book spray. Yep. Because it, it's it's damn near impossible. And it's on a whole nother level when you cross that bridge. 
Yes. Now, what was new in Peretti's testimony was that he was asked about the cause of death sheet. Now, when a medical examiner, from what I understand, is they do the autopsy. There's the full autopsy report. But what they send to the detectives and any other law enforcement or who this needs to go to, they do what's called a cause of death form, which lists the manner of death and the related injuries. Yeah. He's asked about this because on the cause of death form, only the manner of death is listed on there. And he's asked about this. And he said that, yes, that normal procedure is to put the cause of death plus the injuries on there and send it to the officials, like whoever it needs to go to. He even explained, like, if somebody, normally if somebody had a heart attack, he would put cardiac arrest, injuries, or, you know, causing of that cardiac disease or cardiovascular disease. You know, he would give supporting injuries to why he came up with that conclusion well in this case he said that because of the rumors that were going around he only put the cause of death for the cause of death on this form but did not list the injuries when he sent this form over to the police department and whoever else he just kept it to himself probably not a bad idea he's not supposed to do that oh well because the injuries are going to tell them what to look for. Yeah, true. You know, or how to steer their investigation. Like if you see a, a gunshot, if you put a homicide on there and the person's been shot and you go looking for somebody that has a knife, I mean, that's not going to lead you anywhere. You see yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, true that. You need to know the injuries to know what kind of killer you're looking for or what kind of weapon or evidence you're looking for basically yeah yeah so they didn't have any of that he kept it to himself Mm. so Preddy was cross-examined and they didn't mention the confession but they were kind of gearing their questions toward it (laughs) like he was asked Preddy was asked about some of the basically the contradicting items or statements that were made in his confession like was there any evidence of strangling? Because, you know, Jesse said, even though they didn't explicitly say, now Jesse said they were strangled. Was there any evidence of strangling? No, they were just like, okay. Now, was there any evidence of strangling? Peretti says no. Right. What Was there any evidence that they were sodomized? Peretti says no. Just kind of going over some of the key points right. that Jesse had mentioned in his confession. Yep. But asking the doctor on the stand without mention they were getting these questions or why they were asking these questions from Jesse's confession. Yeah. Now a big thing also with Peretti's testimony this time. Now you remember in Jesse's trial, Peretti testified he was unable to determine the time of death because of how long they were in the water and a bunch of other heat and humidity. Right. Well, all of a sudden in Damien and Jesse's trial, he had, he was basically asked his opinion on the time of death. His time of death estimation was between 1 a.m. to 5 or 7 a.m., which through this investigation, com- like it, this, 
completely contradicts the prosecution's entire story. Yeah. And he even further said that he had actually consulted with two other doctors about his time of death estimation and which they both agreed. Which, like I said, this is a what the fuck because this whole, the prosecution's whole story is that Jesse got to the woods at this time with Damien and Jesse. It happened between, you know, around 7 a.m. to where Jesse gets home by 9 a.m. and he's calling, he's talking to Jason on the phone and all of this. Yeah. So if this is true between 1 a.m. and 5 to 7 a.m., this throws the whole the whole story out of out the room. Like Yeah. I mean pretty and much. And it contradicts everything, everything they've set up, like, you know, Aaron's confession, Jesse's confession, Aaron's multiple confessions. Jesse's confession. Like <laughs> and it also means that if this is true. The boys may may have very well have been alive at the time of the night search because the night they went missing, they were searching. Well, John Mark Byers, um, his son, and a few other people were searching till like four thirty in the morning. Yeah, and nobody saw anything. So were they alive somewhere else? Right. I don't know. It's just something to keep in mind. Hmm. Next up for the prosecution was a kid by the name of Michael Carson, Michael Roy Carson. He was in juvie with Jason while Jason was being held on like for the trial. This kid was in juvie with him. His testimony was basically that he was playing spades with Jason. He didn't know Jason or anything, right? but he had heard about it and he was playing with, uh, spades with Jason and he had asked Jason just outright if he did it yeah. and he said Carson said the first time Jason said no then he asked again later on and when he did Jason said that he did it and went into detail where he said that Jason told him that trigger warning I'm sorry, but I feel like this is important because this is a important part of this. Right. Said that they cut off that Jason told him that they cut off the boy's genitalia to where they then drank the blood and quote, this is a direct quote, put the balls in his mouth. End Ew. Quote. The murders. Yeah. And, you know, kind of going into detail, maybe thinking, you know, if he bonded with them because the kids accused are the same age as him. I get it. But then I don't. I don't know why you would want to. But then again, here I am doing a true crime documentary talking about murder. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, um, he said that, you know, a few months prior to the trial, he was working with Carson. And like I said, they were bond he was trying to get Carson to open up. And he had, you know, spoke about the incident regarding Jason and what he was accused of in which apparently Carson didn't say anything at first, but at some point later called Williams 
and told him that he was going to testify because Jason confessed to him. Now, Williams called and told the prosecution how Carson was basically a liar and how Carson got this information. There's even an affidavit on file that I saw where Danny Williams has given his statement saying, and this is spark notes, cliff notes here, how basically how Carson got all this information was through Danny. Yeah. Carson knew nothing about it until this point. And he realized Danny realized he shouldn't have done that. And that he knew Carson was lying and he shouldn't take the stand because he's full of shit. Basically. Right. This kid had a drug problem. I think LSD, some other things. And let's be honest. Jailhouse snitches are full of shit. They're usually looking to get something. Now some can be reliable, but most of the time they're looking to get something out of it. So after this conversation, Carson says calls and tells him he's going to testify. Danny tried to warn the prosecution in a signed affidavit and everything, but the prosecution still used it. Of course. Yeah. Danny Williams, after the, uh, after the trial and after the verdict and everything was read, Danny actually wrote a letter to Jason, which I'll link it in the show notes. I was going to read it to you, but it's, it's kind of long. It's basically stating I'm, you know, basically apologizing to Jason that he tried to get the prosecution to drop Carson as a witness because he knew Carson was lying and that he never thought it would come to this, that he was, I guess one of the things was he was, if I'm wrong and you read it later, let me know. I'm sorry. I'm just paraphrasing here, but that he was scared that if at first, if he brought it forward, he would be in violation of some kind of HIPAA law with private information kind of thing because he's sitting there telling Michael Carson about what Jason's accused of. He thought he would get in trouble, like go to jail for giving private information. So he didn't come, you know, come forward at first because he was scared of that. But then he was like, he realized it was a big mistake. He tried to warn the prosecution and then followed it up with, if there is anything I can do, please, like if you need money for some, something along those lines, it was this big, long apology letter and it was really sweet. Just apologizing to Jason and that, you know, he knew Carson was lying and he was sorry yeah. that he didn't come forward sooner. So of Michael Carson, a big, wow. <sighs> This, it, this case is very frustrating. Yes. And, you know, as we talked about in Jesse's trial, some of the witness statements that were allowed, which, you know, the burden of proof is supposed to be on the prosecution. Yes. But it really seems like in this case that anything the defense is trying to bring in gets shot down. Yeah, absolutely. Now, wait till we get to one of our witnesses later. You're really going to see what the fuck I'm talking about. Oh, joy. Next up for witness for the prosecution was Gitchell. Gitchell was asked, um, one of those potential suspects was a young man named Christopher Morgan, which we'll go into all of the potential suspects later, but this was kind of a, a big ironic ruling in this case, might I add. But earlier, the defense, as I mentioned, tried to add potential 
suspects to the witness list to be questioned on the stand. One of them being a kid named Christopher Morgan. He was a teen from Memphis who just happened to move to California about a little less than a week after the murders. To which, once he moved there, he had confessed on camera, it can be seen in that documentary, to the murders, but then soon after retracted that statement. Burnett, you know, was asking, why is that relevant? And the defense was like, well, you know, basically, he knew all the victims, he knew all the relevant details, all of that, to which Burnett ruled somewhere along the lines of, unless you have something to tie those persons to the event, he wasn't going to allow it. The defense argued that a suspect's confession, even if retracted, ought to suffice as a tie-in, right? Yeah. But Burnett said, well, if we just allow everybody that confesses and retracts it, then the suspect list could be a mile, like 100 people long or whatever. Long story short... He didn't want to let these people that, particularly Christopher Morgan, who confessed and then retracted, in because he didn't want to confuse the jury with things that aren't relevant. Isn't that their entire prosecution? Yes. <laughs> I mean, dude. That's 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 what brought these boys <sighs> to be arrested anyways. So the confession is okay which I get Jesse signed it and whatnot. Christopher Morgan was caught on camera saying it out of anger, but whatever. But Jesse retracts it. It's still valid. Right. But yeah, somebody else does it his. who actually knew the victims and knew all the relevant details. Eh, they don't fucking matter. It's not relevant. <sighs> what? Dude. Yes. I am oh, not shitting you in the least. This is when the state decided to introduce their motive after this as cult related. Now, behind the scenes, which unknown to the public at this time and unknown to most of the people there, Jason was actually offered a plea deal to testify against Damien. Really? Yes. He was actually even encouraged by his lawyer to take it. They were trying to save this boy from the death penalty. So they're offering him a pretty sweet deal. Right. The prosecution was to testify against Damien and his Paul Ford was like, you should take it. Well, I don't know about you. It'd be a really hard deal to pass up as a 16 year old kid on. Being death tried. Row. But Jason stood his ground and denied it because he didn't want to lie, even with the death penalty hanging over his head. So you've got two kids that were offered these plea deals. That, to me, that speaks to their character. It that speaks, speaks volumes. volumes. Yeah. Jinx. That speaks volumes of their character. 16, and I was a little shit when I was 16 years old. <laughs> now, granted, this is a more severe case. You know, this is... Right. This is pretty severe but like they were offered these deals 16 and 17 years old and turned them down because they didn't want to lie not only that but i think even in one of the documentaries jason said either jason or damien said they weren't really worried about it because how can they convict you 
on something you didn't do. Yeah. So they weren't worried about it. And it was the right thing to do. One of the things that happened, I guess, behind the scenes in one of the pre-trial hearings, and this is important for later, Damien, he was being questioned on the stand by the, you know, the prosecution or however you want to put it. The jury was out of the room and Damien was, um, you know, one of the important things that happened was that when Damien was questioned, first questioned on May the 10th, which is five days after the murders, apparently he had requested an attorney. He even further stated that he had asked three times for an attorney, but Detective James Sudbury, the one I mentioned in like part one, yeah, said basically argued against it and said that Damien didn't need one because it would end up costing him a lot of money. Are you freaking kidding me? Yes. No, I'm not. And Damien further said that the detectives were nice at first, but then started to cuss at him, quoting, they were going to fry his ass. And that he might as well confess. Now, while all of this was going on, Damien's mother had testified that while Damien was still being questioned at the police station on May the 10th, she had actually called an attorney who was not only a lawyer, but he was a state senator and asked him to represent Damien. Yeah. To which the senator stated that he had drove that day to the West Memphis Police Department. And when he got there, he asked to see Damien to where he was refused. Are you, what? No. Um, yes. I'm not kidding. Uh, the senator asked a second time, came back later that day and asked a second time, but then was told the building was closed and that he couldn't go to the interview room. The defense was going to use this as part of their witness list. Yeah. But the prosecution argued that the senator's testimony was irrelevant because no part of that interview would be presented as evidence. Keep that in your back pocket. Oh, my Lord. Price argued to this that the jury needed to know and that it was relevant to the fact that Damien was harassed by the police and even denied a lawyer. Not once. Not twice. But three times. Yeah, that's insane. And the lawyer himself was basically denied twice to of his client. Oh my god. Yes. So they denied him presence of an attorney. Yes. Now mm. this is important because whether he's guilty or not, technically that if you're denied an attorney, that whatever is said is obtained illegally. Yeah. It's one thing if you don't ask for it or waive your rights, but if you're denied an attorney, that information is obtained illegally. And yeah. so the defense was trying to not basically not let any of what was said into the court and but to allow the senator's testimony to show how Damien was basically treated like garbage. Yeah. And denied his constitutional rights. rights. Yeah. However, Burnett disagreed and allowed Damien's statements that were obtained from the police during that interview without an attorney. Oh my God. To which he didn't confess, but he talked about some, you know, some Wiccan related things like how water had mystical powers, the significance of the number three, 
and all of that to which Ridge relayed all of that interview regarding like, you know, the different mystical things and the Wicca religion on the stand. I can't with this case, man. So there's just a, a lot going on. Yeah, I'd a say lot so. Going on. The defense, you know, really further tried to continue to discredit the police investigation itself, um, stating it was unreliable, giving an example of at one point I think I had mentioned it earlier about the 10 picture photo lineup of potential suspects where no one was able to ID Damien. All of these witnesses stated they saw or knew something, but nobody was able to pick out them from a lineup. And, you know, they never kept any record of who was actually in that photo lineup. I don't know. That was just, he, they were using that as an example to show sloppy police work, which yeah. there's a bunch of examples in here. <laughs> Plenty of. Anyways, Burnett ruled that the investigation was not the subject of this trial. Really? <laughs> Next up, on uh, this one's the entertaining one. Now we're getting into it. This is my favorite. Hope you hear the sarcasm. Oh, now that cult... Activity has been introduced as a motive. Next up for the defense or prosecution was a cult expert, Dr. Dale Griffiths. Voir, voir dire is where potential jurors or witnesses are basically examined by counsel to determine if they can either act as jurors or if, you know, they qualify and whatnot. So during yeah. this, and I'm not sure, I think a jury is present to during this, but it's not in open court. But during this, they're asking about his credentials and he had received his, he talked about how he had received his doctoral degree from Columbia Pacific university. He, where he received his education. Cause you know, they're trying to qualify him as a witness on the occult. He was asked, you know, what classes did he take or, you know, what kind of test did he take by the defense? You know, they were trying to feel him out right. since this was the occult expert. Well, um, when asked by the defense, you know, all of these questions about like where he took his classes and whatnot, he was very hesitant to answer until finally Paul Ford pulled a little pamphlet out and asked if Dr. Dale had seen this before course he's like yes long story short this guy did not take any classes to obtain his phd he feel filled out a mail order form to where he was then mailed a doctorate degree hold up (laughs) so this expert He's he's a mail order doctor he took no classes, nothing whatsoever. I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't either, because damn, it would have saved me a lot of fucking money. <laughs> <laughs> right? Let me mail one off right now. <laughs> I want to be a doctor too. <laughs> right? It would have saved me a lot of damn money, is all I'm saying. Dude. Um, so, yes. This guy and filled he's out... he's an expert. Yes. Old Dr. Dale here received his doctorate degree in occult studies or whatever the f- 
fuck it's called from a mail order pamphlet. And they allowed this motherfucker to oh, testify. Oh, just you wait. Hold on. As an I'm getting to that. Oh my so God. the defense argued that mail order PhDs that don't require classes does not qualify as an expert in the state of Arkansas. Yeah. Understandably so. Burnett disagreed and said that you don't have to technically, you know, maybe experience. I can't remember his exact wording. I wish I would have wrote it down, but you can see it in that documentary where he said that he doesn't think that's relevant or something along those lines and allowed Dr. Griffiths's testimony as an expert. <sighs> yes. Yes. So even if they did, even if the three teens did do this, this is a fucking circus. This yeah. is a circus. It's a clusterfuck. And any upstanding court of law, like, I would think, would like, be shot down. Just So, Dr. Dale yeah. gets up on the stand to where he further begins to reinstill the idea of cult activity and what, I guess, are signs of cult activity or somebody that practices cult activity. And he, where he says, I have seen, I have seen them, you know, wearing painted black hair, black clothes, black fingernails, tattoos. Looking at your arms here. And where he also further explained occults have ideal times of the year to do sacrifices and that the younger the victim, the more powerful the power and all of that. And then he further held up a book that was seized from Damien's room that had a pentagram on it and other books that had occult objects drawn on them. And he talked about, he held up one book where in the book, it was underlined rise of the devil or something like that. That was seized from Damien's room. However, when Damien was on the stand, he had talked about how he got most of his books from a sale at the library where they would put books out in front of the library where you can buy these books for like 10, 25 cents. And we had already talked about how his interest in, you know, learning about these things, which is fine. Right. I don't know about you. Probably not. I remember when I was in middle school, I had a book on witchcraft spells. I tried a couple of them. They didn't fucking work. <laughs> I was in seventh grade. I'm all right now. I didn't murder nobody yet. No, I'm just kidding. But I'm just saying like I, while some people might not understand that, I understand that whether he's guilty or innocent, that to me, that's a plausible explanation because I did, I might not have had like Anton LaVey books, which was the father of Satanism or something like that. But I did have books on which like spells and stuff. And I, I, I tried to do them. <laughs> I guess my powers, I didn't get my Hogwarts <laughs> letter yet. So <laughs> I don't know. I, I say all that to say, it's a plausible explanation. And with as poor as this kid was, if the library putting them out for sale, those books are used. Right. Who knows where that came from? 
I mean, knowledge doesn't hurt you. Well, not only that, but even if it was like it was underlined, but who's to say he did it? You know, because these books were used from the library. They even cited a notebook that was found as evidence of occult activities that was found in Damien's house where it had some words written on it. Uh, pure black looking clear. My work is soon done here. Try getting back from me that witch used to be. Anybody Metallica fans in here? <laughs> yeah. They were using this as a cult activity. These were words, lyrics from Harvester of Sorrow on Metallica's Injustice for All record. <laughs> and there was God. some more crazy stuff. Like, honestly, I don't even feel like going through it because it was the typical, I think one of them was like an Iron Maiden poster. They thought it was cult, but it was an Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden or Led Zeppelin or something. That was real country. Really? It was it was a lot, and I feel like I would be just repeating a lot of the same stuff that's pretty public knowledge about all of the stuff that was used to, you know, the the black t-shirts. He had 11 yeah. black t-shirts. Bro, have you seen your closet? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Like, I could be convicted of murder if this is what you had. If, this if is that's all you what had they're to, going off of, yeah. Like, I'd be rotten in jail right now. Yep. Tattoos, black clothing, Metallica. (laughs) Guilty. (laughs) It's so... Yeah, and... So this was the... Prosecute... We kind of went on a tangent there, but... This was the prosecution's witness to further instill cult-like activity. Black (laughs) t-shirts. BS. A mail-order PhD doctor. And... (laughs) witness it it's a lot anyways for the defense's argument once again they pretty much used the same you know the same consistent arguments as jesse's trial that there was no physical evidence to link these guys and that there were other suspects such as the bojangles guy john mark byers you know the knife that he gave him right and there was just a lot of avenue other avenues that could have been taken that weren't taken and yeah. that there was no substantial physical evidence to link them. And, you know, Paul Ford talking about how Jason was basically being arrested or was arrested because he was friends with Damien. Yep. So with all that being said, there's a lot more in which will I need a whole other episode to do this. I'm trying to go over the high points here. I know I kind of went over a lot. I went over a lot more than I anticipated, but there is going to be another episode with evidence like a whole list of it because it's going to take a whole episode for that long story short after all of that closing arguments began on march the 17th 1994 the prosecution further instilled you know they say religion you know the wicca religion satanic worship kid with all black everything when damien was asked about who he thought done it or what he thought the person felt like he was like, you know, he probably felt good about it, which I guess could be a little off putting, but yeah. his explanation of that, which is plausible. Well, if they did something like this, that means they wanted to do it. So obviously they enjoyed it. Yeah. Very true. Could be seen 
one of two ways. The defense with their closing arguments. It's like, why was there no blood? Why, you know, satanic panic was going on. They just wanted to find somebody weird to blame it on. And one of the, the podcasts that I've mentioned a couple of times, Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff, he made a very good point where he stated that, you know, these kids were poor. These kids were like dirt, like dirt, dirt poor. Or so maybe the police thought they was they could find somebody and just that nobody Pain would miss and throw it away. Yeah. After the closing ar- arguments finished, the verdict was rendered on March the 18th, 1994. Damien and Jason were found guilty of capital murder for all three of the boys, Christopher Byers, Stevie Branch, and Michael Moore, in which Jason received life in prison and Damien had received the death penalty. Mm. Now, what is a little crazy, and I even thought, like, why the fuck would you say that on camera? At the end of the first film, Damien was being interviewed where he said, you know, he told filmmakers he had always had the feeling that he would be remembered, but not in this way. He kind of felt like, you know, he would be remembered and in a joking manner, remembered as the West Memphis boogeyman. And that when kids went to bed at night, they'd be scared instead of the boogeyman, Damien's coming to get you. He said something along those lines. Now, that wasn't wise. Yeah. 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 It was not a wise thing to say. And I'm not making excuses. I think I can't remember. I don't know. I think him being a young and dumb teenager had had a lot to do with it. Probably. And I think he even further explained it that he was making light of the situation and that he didn't realize or comprehend the situation and that his thoughts were if he hadn't done anything, he didn't have anything to be worried about. Yeah. And that is where we will end part three. Like the biggest thing to me. There's a lot more to that. I'm sorry. One more thing I got to add. I totally skipped over was that one of the things they also used against Damien as a, he was into the cult. They asked him on the stand, like what type of books he liked to read. One of them, he said, Stephen King. If you don't know who Stephen, everybody knows who Stephen King is. Yeah. I love Stephen King. So it was, that was it. I just say that all of that to say, if that's the best evidence that you could come up with, you don't have a case. I'm sorry. No. no. They they didn't have a case. Period. End of story. Well, and you know, like I mentioned before, they did they arrested these boys before they even sent off any of this stuff to see if they were linked to the crime. Yeah. They went purely off this confession that y'all heard it in part it was 2. Yes was shaky at best (laughs) at best and you know the the mishandling of evidence you put evidence 
on a fucking public floor. That was one thing I did not know about until I read the book. I didn't know it either. I did not. I did not know that, and that's caught me off guard. I had no idea about that. that and as I was reading my absurd. book and doing the research, I heard that and I was like, "No fucking way!" Until I went to the trial transcripts, and sure as fuck, yes. Oh my god! Like dude. that caught me so off guard, and I didn't even think about what you brought up about how it's on a public floor. Transfer who the fuck knows what got on there yeah exactly that's what i'm saying man like the biggest thing to me for this entire case is that they were able to obtain convictions for all three boys on the has to be the worst case i've ever heard and the and the judge even went along with all of this crap i mean almost like he was in on it too well and you know i don't know because even today they still seem fairly confident that they got the right people but up until this point and what i've not mentioned so far which i'll mention in you know the evidence section or portion i don't understand how they are still this confident i i think that's just to save face because I don't I don't know. I don't know. I don't they know. don't I mean look, if you've been that blatantly wrong and you're in a public position, so to speak, mm-hmm. and you're a you know, you're law enforcement. I don't know. You know? I don't know. Because I mean it's it's literally absurd it is absurd that they and could the way, even obtain like, and I, convictions I, I guess with the high emotions that were running i'm still not sure how but That's i feel the like if they would have seen some of the evidence or been able to hear some of the testimony from you know the previous trial of the two witnesses for the defense that weren't allowed in right or some of the like physical evidence that didn't that was sent off but wasn't introduced into trial because it didn't fucking link them yeah yeah we'll get there we'll get there but for now i'm gonna end part three so thanks again guys for listening i hope you join us next time for part four i will try to get it out in a timelier manner (laughs) i apologize but uh again thanks for listening uh if if you like us give us a rating Give us a share. Give us a follow. You can never never miss an episode of Murder's Night Out by following us on all, any of your podcast listening platforms, such as Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us for updates on Instagram at Murder's Night Out or Facebook at MNO True Crime Podcast. And yeah, thanks for all the love and Give us a star rating. Hopefully, five star rating. Hopefully, review, a five please. star. If it's a bad review, that's cool. That's cool. You know what? I take constructive criticism. If you have any questions or any case suggestions, email us at murdersnightout at gmail.com. But yeah, thank you again for listening, and we will see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.